And we're live. I'm Mike Lewis, where Peter is live, episode 10. Our usual host is not here, so I am filling in inadequately for Rachel Amiri, who is with her family, her lovely husband, Dan, and three children down in sunny Florida. And today I am joined by Melinda Ribneck, as always. And we have two guests with us. Many of you know Sam Rocha. He's participated mm -hmm. in our live events before. He is a professor at the University of British Columbia. And for the very first time, we have Tabo Hall joining us from Melinda's native state of Georgia. And so we've got two East Coasters and two West Coasters. I'm here in the Washington, D.C. area. What? It's the best coast. No. Wait, West? Oh, for sure. I mean, there is no competition. And I, I actually, now I'm betraying my family who might be watching. Which, but which I, coast has me? Exactly. That's why the We're West the best is the coast. Exactly. Right. I mean, come on. There really is no comparison. I mean, I, there are some great people on the East Coast, but the coast by itself, mm -mm, West is best. Anyway. <laughs> So, Tabo, what are you? Hold on one second. Yeah, you guys talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to grab some. I'm going to look up something real quick. Tabo, you look so lovely. What are you um drinking? Just a little libation. Oh, oh. excellent. Okay. Same here. Cheers. All right. Cheers. So, and I have a uh, Rockstar Energy drink, oh. yellow. So, the caffeine. All right. Sam is Before... judging you, Mike. Wow. Dang. Before this devolves, so the topic is race, racism, and U.S. Catholics. We invited Sam and, and Tabo because they have both looked a great deal and have a great interest in uh, race in the church, in enculturation. They've paid close attention to current events and events in the church. But first, why don't we start with a prayer? Sam, you volunteered to lead us. Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We should have kicked off with the prayer, and then I would have been a little bit less discombobulated. That's why you're supposed to start with prayer. Yeah, I mean, we close enough. Four minutes. So, Tabo, how about tell us a little about yourself since you're new on the show? You know, as soon as you said that, as soon as you said that, the kids start yelling in the background. As soon as you said that, and I'm ready to kill them. Not really. <laughs> Not really. I just realized um, that I forgot to lock the door behind me. So there could be a four-year-old yeah. walking in here or yeah, anyone. Yeah. But you know what? That's life and that's real. So. so I am originally from Liberia, which is on the West Coast of Africa. And we moved to the U.S. the first time when I was five, moved back, came back when I was 12. Yes, almost 13. And been here ever since. And I am wife mother of five and live in savannah love the church worked for the church did youth ministry for a long time and now i am a realtor here in savannah georgia 
And so how did you and Melinda meet? Because I know oh, you're I friends. I was just about to say that. So she was actually, back in the day when she was my senior, she was my youth minister. Oh. And yeah, but then you can't see it, but she's probably rolling her eyes, you know, from the, yeah. So since then, yeah. um, no, <laughs> keep that on the DL. Okay. So since then we developed a friendship and then, you know, we got married around the same time. We've uh, had kids, you know, at the same time too. And yeah, she's definitely so she kept going and I stopped at five. So I'm not sure. So anyway, so yeah, so. Since then, we've been very close, close friends. And yeah, she just has amazing perspectives on the faith and a lot of issues that we face in the world and in the country. I thought she would be great to come on and talk about it. And, and how did you get into youth ministry? Like young people and have always been my um, passion, their perspective on the world, how they view the church in, in Africa, or at least in Liberia, but I think in as I meet Africans in the in the diaspora, the way we view faith is I think a little different than here. Here, it's I think things are run more where the church looks at at adults right as the ones to lead the church, and then children gradually step up into it. Whereas in um, Africa, children take a very integral part in worship from very young ages. So it's not seen as something that will one day be theirs. It's seen mm-hmm. that as something that has all is always, you know, has always been theirs. So we're very involved from very young ages. And so I guess coming here, I've always wanted that to be more embraced and celebrated. Because I think if we wait to quote unquote give young people the church after college or in college, then we've already lost um them. And I think it was JP. JP2, who said that young people are not the future of the church, they are the church, you know? And so that has always been my thing, my passion, it, you know, like exposing or showing them the church in its totality and its universality. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I that I tend to notice about the US church is that there are programs for youth that are directed they're directed at at the youth. Like this is the youth group, the youth do these things, they do these projects, and then they go off to college and become young adults. And in a lot of cases, it's sort of, it's on them to step back into the church, step back into service. Whereas in what you're describing is it's it's sort of the gradual taking on of more responsibilities. As you, as you become more mature, you can take on certain roles. And yeah, the youth are the church and it's, and they're seen as I guess maybe progressing into it or progressing into into church leadership without without that break and return, which is probably one of the reasons why the church in Africa is flourishing and the one here is having a lot of people drift away. Right. So I remember, like, there was a young man um, we got involved with through an organization called Voice of Children that a dear priest friend of ours started, and Father Chidi. And he is deceased right now, now, but he, he came here for surgery and I called him one day just to check up on him. And we were talking for a little bit and he said, oh, I have to go. I'll be right back. And he said, I'll call you later because I have a meeting to go to. I said, oh, what meeting are you going to? He said, I'm going to a meeting of the Purgatorian Society. And I said, <laughs> what? You're going to a meeting of the what society? And he said, you the Purgatorian. Like <laughs> yeah, no. 
And so I said, the Purgatory <laughs> Society, right? Because he was like 19 years old, maybe. I said, the Purgatory Society. Oh, it, yeah. Purgatory, yeah, yeah, Society. And he was like, yeah. And I said, so what? what is this group? He was like, well, it's just a group of college kids and we get together once a week and we pray for the souls in Purgatory. And I'm like, like, I thought it was awesome. But can you imagine, you know, like a group of 19-year-olds here just getting together, mm-hmm. you know? on their own, praying for the souls in purgatory. I think we could get people to do that, but it's just a fundamentally different way of looking Mm -hmm. at the faith, you know? It's not as compartmentalized either. Yeah. Right. Well, Sam Um, went to Steubenville, so I think think he he did experience that kind of thing firsthand, but we don't need to go societies? Not necessarily that, but a group Mm -hmm. of young people getting together on their own for churchy stuff. Yeah, that this that's just what Steubenville is, I guess. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the joy. The joy. Yeah. Communicated joy. I love it. Love it. They're better and worse getting together to do churchy things together though. So yeah. yeah. Why don't we turn to our topic uh, of the day? One of the reasons why we're discussing this is because two days ago uh, a jury found the former Minnesota, Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, guilty on all the charges that he faced on the killing of George Floyd. So he was convicted of unintentional second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. And so this has been a very contentious year. George Floyd was killed on Memorial Day 2020. Since then, his, his death sparked a number of protests around the world. I mean, not just in, in the United States. We saw the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. We saw calls for police reform. And obviously, demands for racial justice were amplified within the last year. So, Tabo, do you think that this verdict, because it seems that justice was done. Do you think it sends a message in our country? Like we're, as a country, we're deeply divided, especially after going through a very contentious election year. Do you think that that maybe this verdict is is a, a way to help us move forward and to heal some of those divisions? So for me, I think, I don't like to say this is justice. I like to say that this is accountability, right? I think that this is us holding him accountable for what he did. I think for me to say this is justice, that Mr. Floyd would still have to be here, right? I don't know that him going to, whatever sentence he's going to receive is going to be justice enough for the death of a human being, right? And maybe that's just because I feel like I don't know that much change is going to come from this. And I guess if I felt that systemic change was going to come from this, then I would feel like this was more along the lines of justice. So I think that, I think we're going to hold him accountable and maybe that accountability will lead to systemic changes that will bring about cohesive justice. So, so that's the first part. Can we heal? I think for a lot of black and brown people, the verdict was a step in the right direction. I think questions about healing are a little premature, right? Because one sentence 
doesn't eradicate 400 years, right? And counting of oppression and slavery and, you know, lynchings and police brutality and all of these things. It doesn't. And I wish I would, I could say that I was hopeful that this would, was some watershed moment, right? But we've had numerous points in history where something horrific has happened and we thought, okay, that's it, right? And legislation or something has occurred, like something has come out of it, right? So we think of the bombing, right? That led to the death of the four little girls, the Baptist church, right? And during the civil rights movement and everybody was horrified for, with that. And that brought about some changes during the civil rights movement, right? But here we are in 2021, right? Still fighting the same battles. So I think we would like to believe that it's going to bring about these crazy changes, right? Or in-depth systemic changes. But I think that to say that makes me leery that that will happen. Because if we're already talking about healing, then we're not prepared to do the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe my, I guess my question was a little bit immature or premature, not immature. Maybe it was immature. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, as you try to have hope, and or at least I do. And so when I see something that looks like a step in, in a positive direction, oh, maybe this is where things are going to turn around. But that's not where the, I mean, there's real work that needs to be right. done. And right. one of the things that readers of our site and, and viewers uh, and listeners will know is that we are continually astounded by how how much more extreme things can get, especially in the last five or six years. It's like, where is the bottom to this? You know, January 6th, was that the bottom? It doesn't seem that it was the bottom. We're seeing, you know, I guess all the conspiracy theories and the anti-masking and the COVID playing into the, the you know, anti-anti-racist rhetoric. Well, Sam, yeah, or- it's all being used like politically, right? So, you know, the anti-mask, all that stuff is being used politically to further inherently racist, anti-immigration, xenophobic, all of those different policies in that culture, right? But I think to kind of like, to backtrack a little, I, I do think for white people, we do have to look at it as it's not that things are getting worse. It's that they're becoming more visible and more visible to white people. So so the protests of the last year that we've had, it's been the largest nationwide. First of all, BLM, we know existed before George Floyd. But following the death, the murder of, of George Floyd, it, we had, it became the protests in, increased and became the nation's largest attended, even globally protest, right? So all of this to bring awareness and then, you know, it's it's to bring awareness of the issues that were already there and happening. So I think when we're talking about it, like as white people, we do have to realize it's not that the problems are getting worse. It's that some people are choosing to wake up to those problems, right? Due to the massive amount of effort that Black Lives Matter movement is putting into to wake us up. Sam, do you have any thoughts on on 
what we're seeing as a society, what's, you know, how, how do we understand this, this moment in history? Well, I mean, just in terms of like just the, the series of progressions, one thing to know is that BLM as a hashtag was put out by Alicia Garza after George Zimmerman got off for the murder of Trayvon Martin. That was the genesis moment of, of, of BLM, which became an organization, BLM, Black Lives Matter Global Network, right? A lot of people not the not the majority not the zeitgeist of of the country but but a lot of people in particular a lot of people of color a lot of african americans knew that in 2013 and in many ways last summer i agree with 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 melinda's point last summer was a consciousness raising summer but i also realized that within a lot of communities who have been saying Black Lives Matter since 2013, before Trump, before so many things who were heartbroken whenever they saw that that verdict come out with that acquittal for, for Zimmerman, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of everything, you know, that hoodie symbol, Skittles, you know, that like that, that those images. I think for a lot of people, there is a sense of, you know, a little bit of Johnny come lately, a little bit sometimes about both Black Lives Matter and issues, and particularly the critics, you know, who are suddenly responding in two last summer as if this all started with, you know, the eight minutes and 46 seconds that Chauvin had his knee on that, you know, gentleman's neck. It's horrific, but it was it was horrific with Trayvon Martin. It was horrific with Breonna Taylor. It's horrific, you know, time and time again. And of course, 2013 itself is an is a idiosyncratic date. If you want to start putting together, you know, obviously the the, the bombings in in Alabama, Emmett Till. I mean, we could go through the you know all the way back to the you know Ida B. Wells you know Southern Horrors documentation of you know lynchings and all the people who got off on those trials, so on and so forth. And I think a point that 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 Pablo made that was so important is that. You know, the transatlantic slave trade was was ended by Congress in the very early 19th century, antebellum. But chattel slavery remained afterwards, and there were people who said, "No, you can't end transatlantic slave trade, slaves, because this is a slippery slope to ending slavery." But it it was done, but it did nothing to stop chattel slavery, and if anything, the so-called chattel logic of slavery became more entrenched. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. And we know that immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and the Civil War was ended, not only Confederate states, but states all over the Union began enacting laws to basically retroactively replace the institution of shadow slavery with everything from, and that's where the color line was built. Du Bois didn't coin that phrase. That phrase of the color line was saying, okay, after emancipation, the freedman needs to still stay on their side of the color line. They can't be enfranchised through voting rights. They can't be enfranchised this, that, that, and the other. So we see the rise of the NAACP. We see the rise of Du Bois. We see, and then we see the civil rights movement come to a head after, of course, the 50s, the Brown v. Board of Education. We see people wondering about case law, Plessy versus Ferguson, so on and so forth. And in the 1960s, because of King and the people who marched and all these things, and don't forget that bombing that happened in Alabama happened 18 days after King went to Washington. 
you know, content of my character, content character. I mean, come on. <laughs> and that letter went out from that Birmingham jail. And it was a different king 18 days later after he gave that speech, mm. which was really about a bad check. Because it was the bad check that he got from Lincoln that he couldn't cash because the money wasn't good on it. And he went to Washington. And after those five different civil rights acts were passed from the 64 all the way to 68 after the riots that came after King's assassination, it was in the early 70s that a particular scholar at Harvard named Derek Bell said, you know what? We've seen this story before. We've seen that every time racial progress is made in the law, every time that society supposedly has an awakening, there's a backlash. And the backlash is usually juridically and legally accounted for and also through social movements. And he said, you know what? We're not going to be naive this time. We're going to begin to enact a critical race theory of legal realism that's going to go into this case law going all the way back to emancipation and build a case law book called race racism in american law like it's going to get updated every two years and we're going to understand that these laws both the ones explicitly about race positive law negative law all of it we're going to take a deep dive into it and we're going to take a new approach to legal theory and legal studies so that we can try this time around 1973 1975 1977 so on and so forth try this time to make not make the same mistake but in 2013 Zimmerman was acquitted and mm -hmm. and 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 went free and BLM started what was what was started with Black and Beautiful it was started with Black Power and then in 2019 George Floyd's life is taken and so just 2 days ago what happened is a part of that genealogy of legal decisions of social movements and all these things and I think Melinda's absolutely right just because a certain majority of people who identify in a particular way in this country started figuring out some words like critical right. race theory right. and Black Lives Matter right. and, and a couple of things here and there and read some Wikipedias does not mean for one hot second that any of this is new or that any of this, it, not only in its legal sense, but I think as Catholics in its moral sense is news. And so for me, what happened two days ago it was a sigh of relief because we didn't see what happened in 2013. And I thank God for that. And I know what happens when you win. Yes. You're setting, you're setting yourself up to, to, to lose. So I, I'm not going to relax. And I think that's some of the caution and some of the hesitation even. I don't mean to put words or sentiments in your, in your mouth, you know, Tabo. But I mean, that's what I'm feeling, especially from the black community right now. And, and I. And there's good reason for it. There's all the reason for it. Now, to draw this kind of back into this theme into the church, you know, all of us are active on social media. There are a lot of public figures out there, theology professors, bishops, priests, who have been, I guess, critical of critical race theory. Now, I know, I mean, for me, I mean, I guess... I'm I'm trying I in my life I've been trying to make amends. I know that I mean I in an interview and and Melinda made note of it once. You know, it's I I don't consider myself a hero for racial justice, but I know that because I can provide a platform, I want to provide a platform for voices 
that can speak more effectively than I can about about racial justice to help people who are just sort of in the the white suburban mainstream culture maybe just are too are really busy maybe if you could provide an overview of what critical race theory is and maybe if you can tie it into like how does it how does it fit into our our race and our understand our, our understanding of social justice as catholics all right I'll, i'm going to give you a very fast hopefully primer okay to just answer answer your question just directly and plainly okay critical race theory was chosen by some folks at Harvard after Derrick Bell left Harvard to become the dean at the School of Law in Oregon. And they petitioned Harvard to basically say, we want another Derrick Bell. <laughs> and that didn't happen. There was some activism around surrounding that. There was a workshop held. This workshop brought Bell back. It gathered some scholars at Harvard at the time, and they call it a workshop on critical race theory. What did they mean, though, when they titled that workshop that? Well, what they meant was that that old Du Bois, that old expression, the color line that Du Bois talked about in 1903, the very first line of the, the Souls of Black Folk, he says the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. It goes on from there. That idea of a color line was an expression of a, not so much a new, but a radical theory of race that was meant to oppose the the theory of race that had become the modern notion of race in the 19th century and that modern that modern idea of race of the 19th century is called the biological theory of race and it's a theory that says you know there's four or five races in the world and it just so happens by god's um providence the race that is called white or european or caucasian or whatever happens to be supreme or above the other races which are ranked and ordered here. And they did all kinds of pseudoscience, the race sciences, whatnot, skulls and all this nonsense. Phrenology. No, yeah. Exactly. Phrenology. It has no basis in science or reality. It doesn't describe anything empirically or descriptively. It simply assigns an axiom of power to this category of whiteness, which itself has no ethos, no people, no nation, no specifics of that kind. And so what Du Bois did is he opposed that biological theory of race with a sociological theory of race, which said what race really is, is this color line, which is decided according to all kinds of dynamics, including legal power dynamics, migration, all these things. And so what Du Bois did is he proposed a critical theory of race, a theory of race that was critical of the prior biological theory of race that was invented to enshrine white supremacy, shadow mm -hmm. slavery, transatlantic slave trade, all of these things. Absolutely. So there was a critical theory of race before the scholars at Harvard in the 1970s on the departure of Bell chose to use the expression critical race theory to describe their workshop. What Bell added to Du Bois's distinction between an uncritical theory of race being the biological one, which is basically just racism, and the critical theory of race, which is a sociological theory of race, which is the project of the 20th century, was to disestablish and abolish that old theory. They added that aspect from Bell of legal realism, which was to read, here's a very basic example. When Bell read Plessy versus Ferguson, he didn't just read the majority opinion. 
he read the two dissenting opinions. And he read those two dissenting opinions more closely and with more consequence than any legal scholar up to his time, because he wanted to show that it wasn't the case that people at the time just didn't know what was right, right and wrong, that there were actually right. real opinions on the record that could be consulted that showed that the arguments they were trying to make in the 60s had actually already been made at the Supreme Court, but they were overruled by, by, by racist majorities. So what legal realism did is it brought critical race theory with capital letters, CRT, into a new era and a new wave. And that ended up spreading to students, people, Delgado, Crenshaw. It spread from law to education to understand educational policy with people, Gloria Ladson Billings and stuff in 93 and from there on and so forth. One thing to make really clear, and then I'll, and then I'll shut up. Neither Du Bois, nor Bell, nor Delgado, nor Crenshaw, nor Gladson Billings were primarily rooting their ideas in German or French theory. They were primarily working from the ground of the conditions of the historical conditions in the United States from emancipation case law all the way to right. their present circumstances. Right. And they were analyzing that and they came up with responses to that. So if anyone says that the roots of this theory are in some sort of Marxist or Nietzschean or Foucauldian mm -hmm. or Derridian or whatever you want to say, I mean, it's, it's just not true. It's not the case. Du Bois broke the ground for the critical theory of race and Bell basically built the case law for the capital CRT at, through legal realism. And that's just, again, I, I'm not speculating here. I'm just telling you exactly what happened. And that's what is the case. And so for Catholics, we can engage with this, I think, through Catholic social teaching. We can find places where like James Cone was in dialogue with Catholic liberation theologians like Pablo Freire and comes up with black liberation theology. We can argue about, you know, wh where that comes, goes. We can go to Medellin. We can go to Puebla. This is all happening contemporary to all these things. What we can't do, though, is make up stuff. Right. And anyone who says that this theory comes from external roots and sources or whatever simply hasn't done their homework and doesn't know what's, what actually happened in this record and isn't familiar with the black intellectual tradition. And I wanna say too, to put in the most simplistic terms because the history that you just went through was really great, right? But some people maybe who are following and haven't done that homework or might be lost in some of those names, right? To put in the most simplistic terms, I have seen within white um, American communities this resistance to acknowledge the linear history and chain of events, right, that have led from the transatlantic slave trade to the, kidna the kidnapping of, of, of Africans, right, to slavery, to segregation, through the whole progression of events through here. And the most common basic thing you hear so often is slavery was 100 years ago, or somehow there's the, the, where we are now exists in a vacuum. So when I see the resistance of even like so-called like academic members in the white community and in our church want to take critical race theory and discuss it out of American context, all I see is an academic form of the same resistance that white people consistently show in this country to, to draw the linear progression of where we are today and to stop playing like the racism that we have isn't is, is in a vacuum or isn't as important or isn't as 
as pervasive because somehow we live in a vacuum without the, the, the chain of events that have occurred and systemically, consistently oppressed black and brown people in this country. So again, for me, when I hear a lot of the critics of critical race theory, I just hear the same old tale of people not wanting to acknowledge how we got here and, and, and the events that unfolded and to act like we can keep racism in the abstract and that there wasn't that in, in, in a vacuum. Tabo, what, what were you going to say? What, what are your thoughts? On critical race theory or on? Not necessarily on any, on how, on <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I think the reason we, I think the reason we argue about race and we argue about problems related to race in a vacuum is because if we do so, it absolves us of um, any real responsibility, right? So too often the response is, why am I responsible for slavery, right? Because I wasn't there. My ancestors didn't even come to this country until a certain you know, time, or my ancestors were Irish and they were you know, slaves too, which is not factual, but, or they were oppressed or whatever, right? And so if you handle it as if every occasion, right, is independent of the whole, right, then you never have to face your culpability in the issue or in the systemic nature of it all, right? Because that mm -hmm. case is just that case, mm -hmm. right? And I think maybe sometimes too, it probably does stem from the way in which different cultures are treated, right? So for example, for, for white Americans, right? They, the way white Americans succeed, right? Is as a group, right? Good, they are good as a group. Like their mm -hmm. accomplishments are applied to them as a group, but their failures are not right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of like the reverse for people of color, right? So what is like the bad is applied in a blanket way and the good is applied individually, right? Mm -hmm. So like most people don't walk around and say, if you hear somebody eloquent, right? And they'll say, oh, that, that person speaks like a black person because they speak like Dr. King, right? Like, they don't apply it to all Black people, that eloquence, right? That's just mm -hmm. Dr. King, right? And so I think that kind of spreads out in a sense in how they apply it to problems, right? So do you understand what I'm saying? Like it's a collective as a like collective versus individual, right? Whereas Black Basically. people, I think sometimes when we talk, like we see things collectively because that's how things are applied to us, right? So we get it that things are not in the moment here or whatever, right? There's a, like the, like we get the fact that things are applied as a whole, right? Maybe, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, so, like, tell me, so like another example, someone saying, oh, she speaks well for a black person. Right. Or she's, I mean, this is a little gross to even say, but she's cute for a black girl or she's, right. or, he, or he's educated for a black man or he sure did a great job for a black man. Right. So different things like like all of these things mm -hmm. like are are symptomatic of the way things are applied or seen. So so and it is all right a symptom of systemic racism, but you mm -hmm. can't see it unless you are forced to see it. 
right? And if you live in a bubble where that's how things have always been, you can't always see it, right? Until you're forced to see it or until you form intimate relationships with people outside of your bubble, right? Who don't look like you, who don't think like you and who have had different lived experiences from you, right? And you have intimate relationships with that, those people, right? That force you to see them in a completely different way, right? And I think that's where some of the change begins, right? So as Sam was talking about critical race theory, right? And how those things were going on and how Du Bois, oh Lord, my- Du Bois. Du Bois. Um, Thank you. Du Bois was talking, uh, was forming critical race theory and how all of those things were being applied, right, in the secular world. Like within the church, we see an awakening going on, right? Because we have the Black Clergy Caucus and things like that happening, where they are saying to the church, hey, hey, we're here. We're Black clergy. We love the church. The church is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. But hey, the church has acted as primarily a white racist institution. And it has done so in this, this, and this way. And it cannot continue to act in this, this, and this way, right? Because if it does, this is what will continue to happen, right? And here we are in 2021 and we're seeing those things, right? And it's, it's I think, it has been hard because the church is still resistant to that idea, right? It doesn't want to see it for what it is, right? That it can be a white racist institution, right? And I can say that and still love the church, right? I don't even know, it sounds crazy, but the church's teachings are not racist, mm -hmm. right? The people who apply the teaching on another hand, can be. So there will be people who will hear that and they will say, that's not fair, that's not true. And that's in the face of the history we know. That's in the face of the history of the Augustus Tolton. And we know of Augustus Tolton. How many other August Augustus Toltons don't we know of who never made it to seminary because of racism and discrimination? Right. I mean, he tried so many times to get into right. seminary before. And then he had to go to Rome because they wouldn't right. take him in the U.S. Right. So this is here's Augustus who wants to be a priest, who is called to be a priest and the American church who says no. And then Rome has to step in, get involved, take him to Rome, you know, ordain him there, send him back to the U.S. and, and say he was, now he's a priest. Now you have to do what we asked you to do. And they still put up roadblocks. Oh, yeah. And he and I, we just actually ran a, a piece, you know, giving a little biography of him by Ephraim Many. And one of the things that he pointed out, and I was reading some of the original sources that he was linking to was he was hoping to go to Africa because he, he I think he knew what he was going to face in 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 the U.S. And he he's one of. He did where he went, where he was called. He went where he was sent. And also thematically, because I'm listening to this conversation and I know I sound a little bit like a broken record when I bring up this line, but talk about this, this whole 
approaching it from a, a theoretical aspect. And there are a lot of, I know there are a lot of Catholic critics of, of Black Lives Matter and of critical race theory who you were saying they they approach it just from this philosophical angle or that just this let me take this case study in a in a vacuum mm -hmm. and uh, apply the principles in an objective way and the it aligns a lot with the with a lot of the opposition to pope francis because pope francis he has so there's there's the one line that he uses over and over and over again realities are greater than ideas and this is something that a lot of a lot of critics of his papacy, they he especially the Morris Letizia or Fratelli Tutti, you take these messy situations, and you have to discern how do I apply the principles of Catholic teaching to this one individual situation, given the history, given the personality, given the experience, given the emotions involved given the psychology given the fears given the assumptions that go into this person's life you can't just say this person is they they did this so it's automatically an, a, a mortal sin or this person needs to move out of this situation because that's the the morally correct thing to do now obviously we are all working towards the christian ideal Every single one of us has a different path, but I'm seeing what between what you and Sam were saying that it's the same type of objection. It's I'm going to use my context, my theoretical, academic, European philosophy, and I'm going to you I'm going to apply it to every situation according to this perspective. I mean, and my one, perspective is, and my perspective is the default. Sure. And, I mean, one thing that that I'm, one of the reasons that may not involve malice, why maybe it's difficult for people to see the realism of a kind of legal realist approach to looking, is that, I'll just be very blunt, a lot of people have not needed an entire list of laws to protect them from unjust discrimination in this country. And there is a whole catalog of negative law that prohibits discrimination against people who are historically have been treated as separate but equal, a class apart, this, that, and the other. It's all in the law. Now, for most people, that's not a big deal because it's never pertained to them. They've never actually, they are not a protected class of person under the law. But when you mm -hmm. are a protected class of person under the law, Texas versus Hernandez broke apart the class apart clause for Mexican-Americans. In Dallas, if you walked into a restaurant, say no dogs, Negroes or Mexicans, right? Whenever you had to have a law to say you can't have that sign up anymore to say whenever you just because you check off on the census because you're white, you still can't have a jury of your so-called peers where everyone's, you know, a gringo and you're and you're being tried in a very you know divided you know and of course the catholic church and, and it was also segregated in the same way there were chapels where they had mexican masses and you know these these churches were integrated in, in as late as the 80s i know one of the one of the priests who integrated the church in ballinger texas was a mentor of mine mm -hmm. what i'm trying to say is that i think a lot of folks are like what's the big deal about race of course 
you never actually needed the law to be invoked for your mm -hmm. own class of personhood. And so obviously not, it's not a big deal to you. And obviously it's hard to imagine systemic racism and all these things. But there are a lot of people, including a lot of our brothers and sisters in our Roman Catholic faith in this country, who are a protected class of person to this day. And whenever you are such a kind of person, there is a kind of realism that is not difficult to imagine mm -hmm. nor to conceive of mm -hmm. because it pertains to you and to your family and to your loved ones and to your progeny, so on and so forth. And, and I believe that, you know, Augustine has this idea of the seculum or the, 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 the times. And, and I think that one thing that Catholics sometimes have forgotten is to pay attention to the times and to understand that God so loved the world and that you have to know the world and you have to know the kind of secular world in order to love it. And a lot of people don't know the secular world of being protected as a class citizen. You know, one more example here, just to show you how real this is, you know, in, in, the, in the West Indies, there was a, a Bible, it's called, referred to as a slave Bible. And it was a Bible that only had 10% of the Old Testament and about half of the New Testament because mm -hmm. they didn't want people reading Moses telling Pharaoh, let my people go. They didn't want to hear about God putting Pharaoh and his, and his army into the Red Sea and killing them. He didn't want to read Paul say no woman or man, no Jew or Greek, right? They didn't want that message to be shared. And I think the Christianity in this country has, in some sense, sometimes existed as a kind of slave Bible to Christians and to Roman Catholics. But of course, the truth of that morally in Christ is that those people who give someone a Bible that's torn and ripped apart and only a partial account of the word of God, they are the slave. They are the ones enslaved by their evil and by their wrongdoing, and they will be cast down. And so, you know, the people who don't have to live as a protected class of citizen are actually some of the most morally vulnerable people in our country today because they don't have access to that stimulant of conscience that allows them to understand why two days ago was a big deal and why last summer was a big deal and why 2013 was a big deal, so on and so forth. And I think a lot of times the argument and the fight today is to simply awaken people and to simply stimulate people's consciences that are asleep and are enslaved in this kind of a slumber. But that's, that's my view. And I think, I think that's important because I think when we talk about these things, like we have to retell the story, right? Like, when we talk about people not knowing that certain things were wrong or even, you know, like that's a fallacy, right? Because if you're ripping pages out of the Bible, right, then you, no. uh, you absolutely know no. that slavery is wrong, right? You absolutely know those things. So we have to retell the narrative, right? We have to tell the story in its fullness. And if you're still resistant to telling the story in its, in its fullness, then you're really not open to change. You don't want change. You don't want progress. You don't truly want unity, right? You don't want us to grow together. You just want us to be silent, right? And that is still a form of oppression. And I think the other part of what you were talking about 
when you talked about, you know, like the morality of it. Like this fight is not just for black and brown people. It really isn't, Mm -hmm. right? At the core of it all, if black and brown people focused just on themselves, we would have stopped fighting a long time ago, right? Or we would have burned this country down, right? Because we would have been consumed by anger and bitterness, right? And quite frankly, a righteous anger to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. right? Because we have a right to self-defense. We have a right to say, you know, like these things are not okay. They're not just all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. If we were consumed just for ourselves or just focused on ourselves, this wouldn't still be here in the form that it was, that it is, right? So somewhere long ago, we decided that this wasn't about just us. Right. Mm -hmm. And Dr. King made that very clear, very, very, very clear. Right. There's no more beautiful way to articulate, articulate that. Right. Like love and radical love. Right. It's not just about us. This is about truth. This is about love. This is about, you know, like the morality and the soul of human beings. Right about the oppressed and the oppressors. Mm-hmm. And we can't lose focus of that. I think this is actually one of the most Catholic aspects of a Catholic anti-racism is that it, mm-hmm. it doesn't understand the evil of racism as or oppression in general as only harmful to the one who is oppressed. It doesn't victimize the oppressed. It understands that morally the oppressor in fact damns themselves far more gravely than the one who suffers oppression and so black lives matter is a movement to save the immortal souls of white folks mm, that's yep. what that movement is about it's 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 for people's to be woken up and to be called to the repentance and salvation in Christ through the call to justice of our brothers and sisters who are black in this country and and in unity with all the calls for people around the world. You know, people didn't like it that much. Even people who agreed with King when he was arguing for, for black lives and civil rights, they didn't care much for whenever he said, you know what, the Viet Cong who are being firebombed, they're a part of our movement too. (laughs) That was a bit much, but that's exactly, I think, you know, the point and why King was truly radical you know, down to the roots to, of this issue. But I think this Catholic understanding of, of, first of all, the fact that evil is always a privation of the good. And in, in other words, that that the, the roots of xenophobia, of self-love, of self-regard, you know, I hear people sometimes thinking that anti-racism is in some sense putting down people's self-regard. No, self-regard is good. You know, we should love the parts that are lovable. But it's the privation of that goodness of self-regard. Remember, Lucifer means light. He's the great <laughs> angel who is cast down. Be, be, I mean, to me, that's a parable of, of the privation theory in many ways. And what that leads us to is to a moral understanding that whenever people, their self-regard becomes so inflamed that they oppress the other, Cain, where is your brother? At that point in time, they become the oppressed. They become cast into the depths of hell. And we're here those of us who are anti-racist Catholics, to offer them salvation and repentance in Christ. 
Right. As we only have a few minutes left, but I was wondering, obviously we've seen a lot on uh, in, you know, during the election cycle, during these protests. I know that there were I had a, you know, there was a huge Catholic contingent within this these demonstrations and Black Lives Matter, but there were a lot of Catholic critics or people who outright rejected those who were seeking racial justice. And a lot of them are some of the, you know, the more prominent media figures, more prominent so-called apologists for the Catholic faith. We had a piece today written by Matt, or yesterday, that we posted about how the apologetics movement needs to start thinking about talking about these topics where within the church, there's a lot of dissent, there's a lot of rejection of what the church teaches about racism, what the church teaches about immigration, social justice. Like a lot of our major apologetics movements are actually trying to counter what what the truth of, of Catholic social teaching is. And I mean, I don't even know what the answer is. I, I think that there's a, it's, it's almost a different mentality, two different mindsets, one that's oriented with the universal church, with Pope Francis, who has spoken eloquently about the need to look out for the oppressed and the marginalized, go out to the periphery or work on the periphery. I don't know. If, I mean, Tabo, it's your first time on our, you know, on joining us for where Peter is. And I hope, I hope you'll be joining us more often as a writer or as a, as a, a voice. Just, I think, yeah, I think for me, the biggest issue for them or for the Western church period, and it's seeming, seeming antagonism towards Pope Francis, towards social justice, towards, you know, like anti-racism efforts, the poor, all of this is that it's rooted in our comfort, right? The Western church has made comfort its God, mm-hmm. right? And all of our theology somehow is rooted in that, all of it, right? It doesn't really require much of us. We say it does, but it really doesn't. We've managed to make everything very neat, very tidy, so that even when we're quote unquote sacrificing, it's a neat, tidy, you know, like prepackaged, you know, you know, like very pretty tied with the bow, you know, like kind of sacrifice. It's all cute, right? It doesn't really require much from us. And I think Mother Teresa was very clear on this. There is a greater poverty in this country, right, in the West than there is where she was working, right? And that that is a harder poverty to eradicate, right? So I think that's where this antagonism comes from because to do the works of mercy, right? To truly do them, to fight for justice, to work towards social justice and to do what the Pope is asking us to do really will require us to give up that comfort, right? It's going to require us to give up some of the things that we have just taken for granted, some of us, right? Really taken for granted. It means that we're going to have to think about the others and not see them as others, right? And then to admit our culpability in their othering. And Mm -hmm. that's hard. That is Mm -hmm. very, very hard. And that is where the resistance comes from. And until we shake that, we're not going to. One thing about the comfort is it's also tied into like control. 
right? Mm -hmm. So like in the spiritual life, especially control is a big, is a big stumbling block. It's a big thing, right? Because when we have control over it, it keeps us comfortable. And so a lot of the resistance to Pope Francis and a lot of the apologetics movement, they really seem to feel like they have control over who God is, what the church says, and Mm -hmm. they've lost the ability, the very, very uncomfortable sometimes downright painful ability to let go of some of that control and let God and the church tell you who they are. And so I think that that is, that's a real thing. Like when you have a control, when you think you have your spiritual life, your, your, all components of your life, God, the church, what it says, all of that in control, then you don't want that challenged. And so I think largely it's been very disappointing. There have been a lot of good things in the past year, as, as we talked about before, BLM was certainly around and as were the injustices before, but in this markedly increase, I mean, every city in this country has protested for a year globally at this point to turn away from it is so incredibly willful. There is no excuse. And so for me and a lot of people, what we've seen is just the complete resistance to allowing yourself to be uncomfortable enough to be challenged, right? To be challenged in this way that right now we're called to be challenged, to question things about ourselves, to question things about what we thought we knew, understood about the church, what we thought we understood about God and what we thought we understood about our neighbor. And it is exactly like you say, it's stemming from comfort and the and and wanting control to keep that comfort. Yeah, with with Pope Francis, I think I think John Paul and Benedict challenged us in that way, but I think they were easy to compartmentalize. So that's a prudential teaching that's optional. He didn't really mean that, but it's like with Pope Francis, it's unavoidable. The discomfort is unavoidable. He made me very uncomfortable at first, but there was something that spoke to me in that discomfort that I knew was waking up my experience of my faith. Sam, do you want to close us out with some words I mean, of wisdom? I mean, I don't know if I have wisdom. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm the son of an evangelist. So to me, the answer is just, you know, repent mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and believe in the gospel. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a view that thinks that, you know, if you have the right views on, 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 on abortion and, and maybe religious freedom or whatever, that, that that's going to gain you heaven, but you'll burn in hell being, being all the right issues and stuff. If you're racist or anything else in the world, sin is sin is sin. And, you know, you got to repent of your sins. And right now there is a real crisis of conscience where some people clearly don't have the fear of the Lord that mm-hmm. they do with respect to certain issues mm-hmm. when it comes to these issues. And my brothers and sisters are gonna are gonna go straight to the depths of hell for it if they don't repent. And I'm calling them, and I think anti-racists have to call boldly to them to repent for the sake of their own immortal souls and for their families and for everyone else and for the soul of the nation. And and to me, there's nothing super radical about saying that. We've said it about many other things. It's it's a it's a vocal pastoral message that some people don't like. It's certainly not maybe. Francis's approach, but it's mine. And, and, and it's an approach that I think we need. And I think that whenever we see the outrage expressed 
at this message, this Christian message of salvation through anti-racism, through 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 calling out the sin of anti-racism, of racism, through, you know, I think the revolt is just the same you see in when people are revolting from other sins. It's 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 addicts who are acting out and withdrawing. And, you know, I think they need to be treated with compassion. And mm-hmm. I think they need to be called in love. Absolutely. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. we can all be restored in Christ. And obviously those of us calling out the sins of, of, of racism have to be vigilant about our own houses. And we Amen. have to we have to be witnesses and we can't and we can't become, you know, albatrosses. But I don't what? think this is fundamentally different. And I think that when people say, let's have a different approach to racism than we had all the other things that are sins, I want to say, no, you still have to repent for that, just like you have to repent for everything else. And thank God for his mercy and for his grace and, and for the sacraments and for our church. But I don't think as Catholics, we have to invent anything here. Yeah, right. And I think that is an important point, an important point to bring up is that Races like that, calling someone on the sin of racism, sometimes people will say like, how can you deal with this, right? How can you deal with these people when they are racist or they have, because I have sins, right? I'm not perfect. There are things I struggle with and there are people who don't struggle with the things that I struggle with and yet they have walked this journey with me, right? Out of love, out of Christian charity, out of all of those things. But even regardless of other people, every day I fail Christ, right? And Christ continues to call me back and continues to love me and continues to see my value and my worth, right? And my dignity. And so I am called to do the same. So to ev- everybody has something. Everybody has something. And we're called to react to them the way Christ would have us act. Now, that doesn't mean, because too often people will say, oh, you can't say that because that's not Christ-like. We have this really inane, silly idea that being Christ-like means that you can never say things like bluntly or truthfully. And we always have to sugarcoat things and sing Kumbaya and skip. That's not it at all, right? Like we can be blunt. Sometimes we can flip tables you know, and all of that, because Christ did all of that, right? So we need to be able to say things, say it with love, but be honest and be direct and call it for what it is, right? So I'm not going to come up with 900 different words to just say, hey, that was racist, right? Just so Mm -hmm. it makes you feel good. But I'm also Mm -hmm. not going to be rude and demeaning just because it was, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have to be able to call it for what it is, say it with love, and be able to say to someone, you are not beyond redemption, right? Absolutely. And I still see your value even with this. And I think that one thing that we have to remember too is that sin is not an individualist a scourge. It's not the sin of Adam. And there are structures of sin that, you know, sometimes we don't have a ton of, you know, options in. You know, in my own community, <laughs> we've used our middle position you might say between white and not white and not black Mm -hmm. to shield white supremacy and to enable and ignore and look the other way Mm -hmm. and even to gain some of the maybe lower hanging social capital of a kind of you know type of whiteness you can even read langston hughes has this beautiful short story called passing about a young man who's a passing black man who walks past 
his mother, who is not a passing uh, black woman, and thanking her for not talking to him and not outing him. And what people don't realize is that the sin of, of racism and the sin of white supremacy is not just calling one person or another a slur. And it's not even just the law. It's, it's something that people wear deep inside their psyche and deep inside their sense of self, deep inside the ways in which they inherit and pass on all kinds of unwilled inheritances. And, and, and these structures of sin, like all the rest of them, are what Christ came to, to save us from. And those who can't even talk about it or are more scared of getting canceled than they are of going to hell, those are the people who need salvation in Christ more than anyone else. And that's what we're here to proclaim, I think. I think that's, we're over time, so I, we'll have to close the program, but I want to thank Tabo and Sam for joining us. I hope, hope you guys had a decent time. I hope our, our viewers enjoyed listening to us. We'll be back uh, next week with Rachel Lemiri, who will surely have a suntan and stories to tell about her glamorous uh, Gulf Coast vacation. And we will see you uh, next week. Take care. Thank you. Bye. God bless. Bye-bye.